Well, if you're a hiker like I am, you enjoy doing a couple of things. Uh, one is to head up a mountain or a valley or a canyon and then periodically turn around and look at the trail up which you've come and the scenery all around. Now, there's an irony in all of that because on the one hand, as often as you turn around, you're looking at the same thing, uh, same trail, same scenery. But on the other hand, as often as you turn around, you're seeing it all in a different perspective. You're higher up on the hill, and what you see below, you actually, uh, though it's the same thing, you see more of. Uh, Paul Gussif and I have two or three times been to a place called Timber Gap, uh, the trailhead for which is in the Mineral King Valley. So you begin in the valley, and about halfway up the hill, uh, where it cuts off to Monarch Lake, you, you're looking up the valley. And then when you get to Timber Gap at about 9,800 feet, you're looking down on the valley. And not only the valley, but everything around it and beyond it. Same thing is true if you like to read. You know, you begin a book and you start working your way through it and periodically you stop and look back on the people and places and things. Because the farther in you get, the more you can see and you get a fresh perspective on all of them and all of that and how they fit into the larger context of the unfolding story. So as we begin Daniel 4, we want to stop and turn around and take a look at where we have come because we're going to notice three changes in perspective. The first change in perspective is, um, well, this book, you know, by all appearances, has to do with a geopolitical conflict, right? Uh, Babylon versus Judah. That's the way it begins. But you don't get too far into it until you realize that it's really about a spiritual conflict. And you can see that there in chapter 1, verse 2, where Nebuchadnezzar brings the captives from Judah to the house of his God, and then all the things he's taken from the temple in Jerusalem to the treasury of his God. We see it again in chapter 2, verse 47, where Nebuchadnezzar declares that Daniel's God, and, and this is... The, the God of a captive, no less, is the God of God and the Lord of kings. And then you see it again in chapter 3, verse 29, where Nebuchadnezzar decrees in no uncertain terms any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Judah shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid ruin. I mean, this is a stunning declaration from a man of Nebuchadnezzar's a personal and political stature. Well, a second change in perspective becomes apparent at this point of impact, and it's this matter of God-blessed spiritual resolve. Spiritual resolve. Uh, we saw it in chapter 1, verse 8, where Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah resolved that they would not defile themselves with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. 
And while that resolve immediately put them uh, at odds with the palace, it ultimately led to them, and we see this in 1, 19 and 20, standing before the king such that in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. See it again in chapter 2 where Daniel's God-blessed spiritual resolve enabled him to unlock the mystery of Nebuchadnezzar's nightmare, thereby calming the king, uh, saving Daniel's own life and the life of his fellow advisors. You see it again in chapter 3, where Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah's God-blessed spiritual resolve saved them from a fiery death, protected others who shared their convictions, and secured positions of influence for themselves in the Babylonian government. That spiritual resolve led to a third change in perspective, which concerns spiritual blessing. It, it's, it's really fascinating to me that the resolve that Nebuchadnezzar was trying to break in Daniel is the very thing that led to blessing for him, for Babylon, for the empire. Blessing, spiritual wisdom, chapter 1. Spiritual relief, chapter 2. Spiritual conviction in chapter 3. Further, it's also fascinating to see that God not only blessed Daniel's spiritual resolve and by it Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, he also blessed the world in which they lived. We saw that last week in 329, though in, in rather dark tones. We'll see it again here in chapter 4, but in bright ones. And if we went on in this book, which we did some years ago, but doesn't serve our purposes right now, on into chapters 10 and 11 and 12, we'd see it woven throughout a message of hope for the entire world that reaches down not only to our day, but beyond a message of deliverance and resurrection and righteousness and everlasting life. So Yahweh is a sovereign God. Uh, we sang about that this morning. And, and the book of Daniel is eminently clear about that fact. But he is also a saving God as well. Sovereign and saving. And that's what's on display here this morning as Nebuchadnezzar testifies to the work of God in his life. And here's how that story unfolds. He introduces the story in verses 1 through 3, and then he tells the story in verses 4 through 36, and then he uh, wraps it up with a brief conclusion in verse 37. The main point to it all being summed up in the final phrase of the last verse, those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. And Nebuchadnezzar hangs himself out there as exhibit A, humbled by God for the glory of God, and then raised up by God. Not to Nebuchadnezzar's glory, though he did receive some in that uh, personal resurrection, as it were, but again, to God's glory. In fact, that's where Nebuchadnezzar's story not only begins, but ends. 
but the declaration of God's glory. So take a look with me at verses 1 through 3. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. So Nebuchadnezzar begins his uh, testimony with some powerful declarations. For instance, God's glory is for everyone. Uh, What was originally for Daniel and commended to Nebuchadnezzar and then by Nebuchadnezzar to the people of Babylon is now being commended to the entire world. All peoples, all nations, all languages. This is a universal declaration. Uh, As Americans, uh, we view religion as, as a private matter, right? Keep it close to the vest. But in God's economy, it's a public one. It's, 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 it's one to be declared, and with it, His glory. Further, at its heart, God's glory is a message not of domination, but of peace. In fact, you see it there in the second half of verse 1, peace multiplied, peace upon peace upon peace. Nebuchadnezzar's message of peace is one of highest praise. And we know that because he he renders it here in a lyrical fashion. Notice in verse 3 how it's formatted there in your Bible. It's it's written down like a song or like poetry. Lyrical expressions bespeak the highest praise in the Scripture. The first recorded spoken words back in Genesis 2, human words, were a poetic couplet. Uh, uh, Israel's salvation from Egypt was celebrated with a song, Exodus 15. Uh, The birth of Jesus was announced by an angelic choir, Luke chapter 2. Here, as well as in verses 34 and 35, Nebuchadnezzar expressed his highest praise to God in song. And, And that's one of the reasons why every time we gather, we praise the Lord and encourage each other in song. I was saying to somebody recently, I think, at a meeting here, isn't it interesting? To what other group do you go in your life that generally begins with singing? Who sings? Rotary Club sings. But beyond that, I don't know. We sing. Because it's, it's in Scripture, the highest form of praise. One other thing that's worth noting at the outset here is the faith of Nebuchadnezzar, because we, we, we can see it growing, we can see it maturing, we can see it progressing. Last week in chapter 3, the king offered praise to the Lord, but he did that uh, uh, in terms of what God had done for Hananiah, uh, Mishael, and Azariah. Here in chapter 4, he once again offers praises to the Lord, but this time it's for what God's done for him, 
for him. Verse 2, it has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that Most High God has done for me. Praise the Lord, Nebuchadnezzar essentially says. In chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar ordered Babylon to bow down before him. Here he's bowing down before Yahweh. And not only that, he's commending everyone, everywhere, to do the same. He's gone from being a persecutor of the faith to an evangelist of the faith. Nebuchadnezzar had been humbled and exalted by the very message that Israel ignored from the prophet Isaiah. And you've got to believe that there were some among God's people who heard Nebuchadnezzar's story and marveled and wondered to themselves, if the Lord can do this for Nebuchadnezzar, maybe he can do it for us. So Nebuchadnezzar's story begins on a high note. It would be a great one-man story for uh, a Saturday breakfast. Uh, Not possible. We have Mark Somerville in lieu of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, but uh, we have it here for us in Daniel chapter 4. Well, that's Nebuchadnezzar's lead-in. That's the introduction to his story, his testimony. Let's listen to the story now. That begins in verse 4 with a snapshot of Nebuchadnezzar's life, which was one of personal peace. You see that in the beginning of 4. He was at ease in my house, as well as one of professional success, prospering in my palace. And it's no wonder because Nebuchadnezzar's long life, he reigned for 42 years, was filled with all sorts of successes. Uh, On the civic front, he secured Babylon with walls that were so thick, you could drive a chariot uh, uh, led by four horses and pull a U-turn on the battlement. That's That's a thick wall. He, he constructed gardens that were so exotic, they were considered one of the eight wonders of the ancient world. On the home front, Nebuchadnezzar built a palace for his wife and connected that to the extravagant gardens. He also built a palace to which he could retreat in the summertime. And then on the, on the religious front, he uh, uh, repaired uh, or restored uh, over a dozen different temples. So in terms of his possession, uh, in terms of his power, both political and spiritual, Nebuchadnezzar had it all. I mean, he had it all until his life was shattered by this epic dream that begins there in verse number five. He says, I saw a dream that made me afraid. It alarmed me. Now, a brief word, I I think, is an order about dreams, Um, because when I come across these in the Bible, you think, well, that's way back then, and they were into funky stuff that's not really part of the modern world, but we're into dreams too. The main difference between the way we deal with dreams and they dealt with dreams is that we see dreams as something to be explained from within, right? Just struggle in our subconscious. Uh, uh, inarticulate uh, fears and worries that we try to pull out. Whereas in their day, they had dreams and tried to interpret them from without, 
from the outside uh, by a deity or a dream code or a precedent in behavior, past behavior. So what was this dream that was so frightful and alarming to the king? Well, Nebuchadnezzar's dream featured three basic elements. First, a tree that was, it was like a Saturn V rocket. It was huge. Um, it was reminiscent of the Tower of Babel. It, it, it was soaring and strong and prominent and bodacious. It, it also rendered benefits like Eden, the Garden of Eden, since it fed and shaded and sheltered every living creature that relied on it. Second, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream featured a watcher. Uh, sounds like the name of a video game to me, but a watcher. But uh, no, there was a watcher, and the watcher was understood to be a messenger. And the message that was issued by the watcher there in verses 14 and 15 was this. Cut down the tree, destroy everything on it, but leave the stump in place. Well, the one represented by the tree was relegated to, uh, or rather, for seven periods of time to live with the habits and in the habitat of an animal. Third, Nebuchadnezzar's dream featured an expressed purpose, and he mentions it in verse number 17. That the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. And that was his dream. So how did he respond to it? Well, he reflexively called for the crew that had failed to interpret the dream in uh, chapter 2, and they do the same here in chapter 4. So then he thoughtfully calls Daniel, who had figured out his dream in chapter 2, and who arrived on this occasion on entirely different footing than he had before, since this is the first record of Daniel approaching the king without his life hanging in the balance. In fact, the tables have been turned in chapter 2. Daniel was the one in the fearful position. Now in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's in that place, revealing that no one, uh, not even arguably the most powerful man in the world, is free from fear. Notice the confidence that Nebuchadnezzar expressed in Daniel. You see it there in verse number 9. I know that the Spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Nebuchadnezzar had come to know Daniel as an honest man and a fellow who would speak the truth. Reminds me of a friend of mine who was a college basketball coach in Illinois, uh, left his position, moved to Washington State where he began to manage a stable of high-end stallions. Uh, the old Seattle Supersonics, uh, NBA team, now the OKC Thunder, found that he was in the area, contacted him, and asked him if he would like to, in his spare time, um, scout for the Sonics. And he said, yeah, sure, I can do that. And so he did. 
And um, after a winter of scouting, uh, college and university basketball players, the Sonics called everybody back to Seattle in preparation for the draft. And um, when, when they pulled the scouts together, the, the main uh, dude, the head of the scouting department, said, hey, listen, this is who the front office wants to draft. And this is who they want to draft first. So when we have our meeting and the ownership comes in, um, you're going to say, I think we should draft this name. And so my friend begins to think to himself, you know, if they knew this all along, why was I spending the winter months in these freezing field houses throughout the Pacific Northwest? And so the ownership walks in, and one by one, each scout mentions the name of this fella. And you can hear it coming until they get to my friend. And he mentions the name of somebody else. And so when the meeting's over, my friend is certain that his NBA career has also ended until two things happened. Number one, the head coach, who was a fellow by the name of Lenny Wilkins, introduced himself to my friend and asked him to be his assistant. <laughs> because Lenny said, if you can tell the brass what you think under that kind of pressure, then you're the man I want seated next to me at game time. Second thing, well, no, I should mention that he went on to serve as Lenny's assistant for 16 years, and uh, I just found out three years ago he was given an NBA Lifetime Achievement Award. Second thing, after all those scouts had recommended the player that they were told the front office wanted to draft, they recommended that one, they drafted the guy recommended by my friend. That's the kind of trust that Nebuchadnezzar had in Daniel. So how does Daniel respond to the dream? Well, you see it there in verse 19. Daniel responded to Nebuchadnezzar with alarm, to, to, to which Nebuchadnezzar replied, Belteshazzar, don't let the dream or the interpretation bother you. Please, don't, don't let it bother you. Why would Nebuchadnezzar's dream be so alarming for Daniel? I mean, it wasn't his dream. This was happening to the king. Oh, yeah, it was happening to the king. And, and Daniel may have recalled in that moment Jeremiah's pre-exilic words, in Babylon's welfare, you will find your welfare. So if this dream didn't look good for Nebuchadnezzar, then it didn't look good for Babylon. And if it didn't look good for Babylon, then Daniel and his fellow exiles. A compromised head of state could put the entire nation in jeopardy. So Daniel's alarm might be an indication of some fear that began welling up inside of him. In fact, one scholar put it this way, um, uh, fear is one of the great enemies of speaking the truth. And that could be why Daniel's first words to Nebuchadnezzar were, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you in its interpretation for your enemies. But true to himself, uh, Daniel spoke words of compassion to Nebuchadnezzar. He spoke words of candor, which he clearly displays there in verses 20 through 26, and then finally a word of counsel in verse 27. In 20 through 26, Daniel explained to Nebuchadnezzar 
that that Edenic uh, Tower of Babel-like tree was him. And because the king saw and heard a watcher predict doom for that tree, he said in verses 24 and 25, this is the interpretation. O king, it is a degree of the Most High which has come upon my lord the king that you shall be driven from among men, that is, you'll lose power, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, that is, you're going to lose your dignity. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, that is, you'll lose your humanity. And seven periods of time, whether that was weeks or months or years, we don't know. We do know this, that seven is the number of completion So uh, in God's economy, so whatever God had intended for those seven periods of time would be done in total, according to God's satisfaction. Seven periods of time shall pass over over you till you know that the Most High God rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. But notice this. Notice this. Nebuchadnezzar's fate was not a foregone conclusion. It was not a foregone conclusion. Daniel has now interpreted the dream, and I can almost see him take his elbow and put it in his hand and stroke his beard, and in verse 27 say, let my counsel be acceptable to you. So here here comes my word. Here comes my counsel. And, And Daniel speaks in words that are replete with Scripture. He's going to draw from Proverbs and Jeremiah and Jonah and Micah. Counsel available to anybody who's willing to read and reflect and reason according to God's Word, which we know that Daniel did, and any of us can do as well. He says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sin by practicing righteousness, and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. And that word prosperity is the same word for ease. It's the same thing that Nebuchadnezzar had been enjoying before he was assaulted by this dream. So, Nebuchadnezzar repented of his sins of unrighteousness, the the cruelty that he uh, practiced toward the oppressed, that God would have mercy on him. God wanted him to be a king according to his blueprint, a king as described in Psalm 72, who brings justice to the poor of the people, will save the children of the needy, and will break in pieces the oppressor. Okay, well, that's pretty clear. Interpretation clear. Counsel very clear. What does Nebuchadnezzar do? Well, what's the next thing we read? Verse 29. At the end of 12 months. (laughs) In other words, one year later, Nebuchadnezzar hadn't done a thing about what he had heard from Daniel. As time went on, the king presumed upon the patience of God and continued to live as he had been living 
all along. One scholar puts it this way, God's patience can be misunderstood as something to be ignored. Mercy, he says, can promote apathy. God loves to show mercy. Oh yes, he's sovereign. Oh yes, he's just. Oh yes, he's all those things, but if he's anything, he's merciful even to the most sinful of people. We see this in principle uh, in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 18, verses 7 and 8. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, then I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. We see that in practice. When bloodthirsty King Ahab is confronted by God's spoken word through Elijah, 1 Kings 21, as well as when youthful King Josiah is presented with God's written word uh, by the temple secretary, Shaphan, and he repents. Both repented, causing things to go well for them and their people. But Nebuchadnezzar had become deaf to God's word. He, he could no longer hear it. There's a story told, it sounds like an apocryphal pastor's story, but it's not, it's a true story, about a blacksmith uh, over in Wales who bought a dog. And he brought this new dog to work with him one day, and as he, uh, the blacksmith, began hammering away at the horseshoes on his anvil, the dog went berserk, you know, angrily barking throughout the day. But over time, the barking became quieter and less frequent until one day a friend stopped by to see the blacksmith and found the dog uh, sleeping by the fire while the blacksmith hammered away at his work. The dog had become not deaf, but deaf to the banging. God loves to show mercy, but never at the expense of one who has become deaf to his word and willfully ignorant of his sovereignty. And that was Nebuchadnezzar, about whom we read, beginning in verse 29, at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said from, from his elevated vantage point, you know, up there on the roof, it's not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. You know, in a way, I can identify with Nebuchadnezzar. I can't. We used to live on five-plus glorious acres in rural Indiana that we cleared and, and, and contoured and then on which we... Uh, built a house that we had designed, and I can remember on Saturdays it would take me all afternoon on my riding mower to cut the lawn, but when it was all done, I'd step inside, take off my boots, walk up the stairs, position myself at a second floor window, <laughs> and gaze out over it all, and I would literally think to myself, is this not Babylon, which I have built? <laughs> <laughs> it's a great feeling, feeling of satisfaction. Well, I knew better, 
because I understood that it was all a blessing from God. But Nebuchadnezzar was convinced of his greatness. My mighty power, the glory of my majesty. You see it there in verse 30. Convinced, that is, until we get to verse 31 where we read, while the words were still in the king's mouth, he was reminded of his dream and its interpretation. So that verse 33, we're told, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. Sinclair Ferguson puts it clearly and simply when he writes, the one who refused to honor God's glory loses his own glory. Refusing to share what he has with the poor, he becomes poorer than the poor. He becomes outwardly what his heart had been spiritually and inwardly. He steals. Nebuchadnezzar had been living instinctually, like an animal, rather than reasonably, like a human being. I mean, if he wanted it, he took it. If he felt like it, he did it. If he aspired to it, he attempted it. He listened to his heart. He followed his dreams. He never took no for an answer. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was in control of his life. A truly American way of living. (laughs) Maybe that description fits your own life. But in truth, God was in control. A fact that was impressed upon him over the course of time until one day, until one day, we see in verse 34, he says, I lifted my eyes. I lifted my eyes, which marks the end of his fall and the beginning of his rise. Until then, Nebuchadnezzar had only ever looked at himself or down on others. But after the the harrowing of his soul over seven periods of time, Nebuchadnezzar finally looked up. He looked up. He, he, he opened his clenched fists. And the story ends where it began on notes of highest praise, littered with over a half dozen references to Moses and the Psalms and the prophets. Nebuchadnezzar not only turned to God, but he turned to God's word as well. Take a look at verse 34. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. And and now he breaks out into song again. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. That's covenantal language. God is not this impersonal sovereign. He's one who has entered into covenant relationship with his people. Nebuchadnezzar speaks to that. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing as he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Because only God is great. Only God is great. I can remember holding my hands and bowing my head as a child and with my cousins when we get together as a family. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for this food. Amen. Because he is great. 
Louis XIV left directions for his funeral, which included the following, that every candle that lit Notre Dame Cathedral be extinguished except for the one that rested on his casket. Well, a bishop by the name of Jean-Baptiste Massillon was selected to deliver the sermon on uh, the day of uh, Louis' funeral. And as Massillon approached the pulpit, he walked by Louis' casket and he snuffed out the candle. And thus he began his sermon. Only God is great. Only God is great. And that's why Nebuchadnezzar's story ends on these high-hearted notes because Nebuchadnezzar had come to understand that only God is great. As hard as that was to learn, he couldn't have been any happier than to make it known to others since this is the point to which we must all come, isn't it? Holy God is great. There is a God and I am not. Hey. So it all ends with these high-hearted lyrical tones but a deeply challenging word. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. And now the challenge. Nebuchadnezzar's for those in his day and for us as well. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Have you been humbled? And that brings us to the table which, like we read in Daniel 4, is a testimony to our pride. But it's also a testimony to God's grace and His mercy and His salvation and His peace, spoken by Daniel but fulfilled in Jesus as God's greatest sign, His greatest wonder, who took our place and humbled himself even to death that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's good news for us, for the entire world, and to the glory of our only great God forever and ever. Amen.